afternoon. Uh, this is weird being back like this instead of in front of a uh, computer screen. But um, so uh, today I thought I'd talk about something that I've grown to learn a little bit about over time. Uh, the, the title of the talk is Born Again. And uh, well, this works. So pictured of, so we just welcomed our fourth child, Jonathan Ezekiel Yusuf, uh, born on the 23rd of May. And <coughs> we've been told that our kids look identical to each other. Like we have, we make one kid and then over time they just morph into something else. And so these are actually pictures of the four kids on the first day of life for each of them, starting with Emily all the way on the far left, if you're looking at the screen. Lily, James, and Jonathan, and they do kind of look characteristically the same. And uh, so that I, I, I always get a kick out of that. But uh, so Jonathan is, is now born. And so in the process of seeing a child born again and thinking about the process, I started to think a little bit about the term born again. Uh, it looks like we've had the same kid born four times. But um, and so it's an interesting term, the term born again, and it's come to mean something different in my life um, and maybe something different in the Orthodox faith than it does mean in kind of common usage in, in the West. And so we'll get a little bit into this, and hopefully today, you know, it's very uh, interesting. I was talking with a good friend of mine the other day, and uh, we've kind of, you know, a quick look into my spiritual life are usually these talks. So like this is usually how I'm doing or things I'm, I'm thinking about. And um, so hopefully it's helpful. Maybe some of you have thought about similar things or can relate to similar things. Um, but this usually winds up being kind of things that I've been chewing on for a little bit or trying to reconcile or work through uh, whatever the case may be. <coughs> and so moving on, uh, the term born again. So it does mean something different in the West than it means uh, in, uh, in our church, in our tradition. And uh, so here we see, I'll read this for you. It says, the phrase born again Christian is frequently misrepresented. This is from uh, a Western Christian website. So this is them ex ex explaining what the term born again means. Looking at its primary reference, we see that its meaning is not about physical birth, but about experiencing a spiritual renewal. It is an expression used by many Protestants to define the moment or process of fully accepting faith in Jesus Christ. It is an experience when the teaching of Christianity and Jesus become real and the born again acquire a personal relationship with God. The term originated from 
<clears throat> an incident in the New Testament in which the words of Jesus were not understood by a Jewish Pharisee, Nicodemus. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus responded, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, and this is kind of the, the big difference. This is where we have a little bit of departure. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. And that's John 3, 3 through 5. <coughs> So I don't know if this audio clip's gonna work or not, but this is just a Protestant minister kind of explaining what born again means to him. And I thought better than me to just regurgitate, but actually have it come from one of the sources so it's more reliable. <coughs> this is how you know if you've been born again. This is how you know, right? When we're born, we're going the wrong way. We're going toward hell. Every one of us is going toward hell. When you're born, you do not have to, you're, let me say this again, you don't have to teach your children to be bad. It will, it will come naturally to them. So yes, teach them to be good, right? So I was born going this way. But my parents, they got saved, they were going that way. So they were telling me, you need to go this way, you need to go this way. So I would try to be good. And so I would put pressure on myself. Come over here, come over there, come over here. If I ever let the pressure off, boy, I could bring right back to being bad. I'd go to youth camp, I'd walk down the aisle, I'd do all this stuff. And sometimes I'd walk down the aisle and go, I can't find it. Because nothing changed in my heart. And in that motel room, I said to God, God, I can't change it. I cannot change it. I have been trying to change it. I cannot change it. But I give my life. And the Lord reached down from heaven and went, in my heart like that. Now, I want to do what I can. He took the desire for drugs away immediately. I want to do it. I, I want to go this way. Here's what I found out, though. Since I've gotten saved, if I put pressure on myself, I can do the wrong thing now. Nope, I'm not forgiven, Daddy. Nope, he does this all the time. No, I put, no, no, Lord, no. Boop, okay, I forgive her. My default now is to do the right thing. But my default before was to do the wrong thing. So that's... <clears throat> kind of some idea of what in some people's mind it means to be born again. So the question is, what does it mean in our tradition? And, <coughs> sorry. And so this is, uh, this is taken um, from Orthodox writing. And it says, the phrase born again also needs some tweaking, if not rescuing, from its narrowly individualistic evangelical environment. First of all, the word again, Greek anothen, in the phrase born again is better rendered from above rather than born again. So that Christ is not counseling a repetition of the first birth, but a completely new kind of birth from above, i.e. from God. The phrase above being a Jewish term for the divine name, Christ connects this rebirth with water and spirit, the water clearly being a reference to the water in which his disciples were immersed in baptism. This was unanimous conclusion of the early church and undergirds the reference of, to baptism as found in St. Paul when he speaks of the washing of rebirth and the Christian being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. 
So a couple of things I want to make clear. Number one, there's absolutely nothing initially wrong with what we saw on the Western side of things. The kind of come to Jesus moment is an important moment in our lives. It's an important reckoning where we finally say to ourselves, you know, internally, this is what, this is what I want to believe or this is what I really believe, right? But the distinction is it's not a, it's not a moment, it's not a, it's not an instance in time where this happens on our own, right? The only time something like that can happen is when it's inspired in a mysterious way, and that's why the church connects it to baptism. Baptism is, is, is a very important element here, and it's a mystery that we can't completely understand. But it's not simply just a changing of a mindset to saying, I finally believe Jesus, right? Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about that um, in terms of, you know, the difference between what the Western Church may mean and what the Orthodox Church may mean on this, on this issue. However, that's not exactly what I even want to talk about today. In fact, the <coughs> thing I want to talk about again that I can't leave alone for whatever reason is Psalm 50. And Psalm 50, I talked about this maybe a couple months ago. I can't leave Psalm 50. It keeps throwing rocks at my face every morning when I wake up and says, wake up, read Psalm 50 again, read Psalm 50 again. And I read it, and every time I read it, not every time, but many of the times I read it, something new dawns upon me or something new convicts me. And this is the, this is the beauty of the Psalms and the church prayers, like the prayer of Thanksgiving. Um, I've talked with several friends about the pivotal role those two prayers have played in my life over the last year, I'd say, um, and I, I find it very helpful for my own spiritual walk to read those on, and pray those on a daily basis. And it's, it's really remarkable the things that come to you in, through the inspiration of God and through prayer, um, in these prayers that maybe you haven't realized before or haven't thought about before. And so one of those things I wanted to talk about was something I think of as kind of the Psalm 50 conundrum. And, you know, this pastor was talking in good faith about changing your mindset and changing the, the frame with which we approach things. I have a God's mindset. I want to do good. I want to do good. And yet, more often than not, I find myself maybe not doing those things. I can't automatically just follow that trajectory or path that I wanted to follow. And I get, you know, for me personally, I tend to be somewhat introspective. I get down on myself. I start thinking to myself like, geez, you're like 43, almost 44, but 43, and at, so, at some point, like, this has got to change. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes you do new things that you didn't do before, and you keep doing them over and over and over again. And why is this? You know, this, this, really, uh, this really bothered me. It really kind of still bothers me to some extent. Um, and so, you know, here is Psalm 50, the passage says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. And the part that convicts me all the time is that my sin is ever before me. I'm aware of most of the things I do. I'm aware of most of the sins I commit. Most of the shortcomings in my life, I'm aware of those. And so how do we, like, not turn into these depressed balls of agony and despair? 
you know? Like, how are we supposed to not when we know what we're supposed to be and yet we can't do it and we can't figure it out? And so I used to be a roommate with a very close friend of mine. He was a classics major, very smart guy. And so, you know, over time, the classics, the classical Greek rubbish, you know, invaded my brain and he presented me with the story of Sisyphus. Does anybody know the story of Sisyphus? It's, it's an interesting story, right? So I'm not gonna get into the details of the story because it's kind of irrelevant, but there's this King Sisyphus and he upsets the gods, Zeus, uh, uh, Thanos, Thanos, the god of death, Ares, the god of war. He upsets these gods and he tricks death on two occasions and his punishment is to roll this massive boulder up a mountain. And every time he gets to the top of the mountain, the boulder like basically rolls down on him and like he's got to start over again. And this is, his, this, is, this is what the gods served as his punishment. This is your punishment, Sisyphus, because you tried to trick us and you deceived us. So every day of your life, this is what you're going to do. You're going to roll this massive boulder up a mountain and you're going to try to get to the top and right when you get to the top, it's going to roll down on you and you have to start over again. And that's what my sin feels like to me sometimes. It feels like every day I wake up saying, today is going to be different. I'm going to be different today. I'm going to roll this boulder up the hill. It may be hard at times. I may see things at work that are tempting, or I might get jealous over this or greedy over that, or compare myself to my neighbor in a way that's not edifying, um, or you know, get really upset with my children, which happens often, but, <laughs> but get really upset with my children. And then, you know, usually for me, it's by like 8.30 or 9 o'clock, the boulder's already rolled down over me. Like I can't make it to lunch before the boulder rolls down on me. There's something that I've done in my mind and some sin that I've committed that just defeats me and kind of can turn, turn you into this tailspin of despair, this depression, this like, why can't I do this? Why is God not helping me do this? And I do it prayerfully, right? It's not like I'm just doing this out on an island by myself. I realize I need God's help to do this. But even, even with those prayers, even with that, I still feel this boulder sometimes just rolls downhill and I have no, no power against it. Um, and so I call this kind of my own personal Sisyphus. And, you know, that's, I tried to take a pseudo artsy fartsy picture of me looking in a mirror, examining myself there. That was my attempt to be artistic. Please don't laugh, but um, the uh, the the it's the it's the process of self-examination that still is important. We do need to look at ourselves, and we do need to see what are the things that we are falling short on. What are the things that are perhaps edifying and good in our lives? So self-examination is important. It's not something we should disregard. Um, and so you know there. Are, many types of sins, you know, at the, the end of the, the, the hours of the Egbeh, we talk about the, the intentional and unintentional sin, the seen and unseen sin, um, the failures and the missteps, all of these are, are, you know, part of it. And it's not like this clean, clean ledger of I did this, this, and this. It's a tangled ball of yarn, right? Our, our lives, our spiritual lives can be kind of very cluttered and messy and the things that we do on a daily basis, we may do wonderful things uh, you know, we may commit a sin and then two hours later do something wonderful for somebody. You know, something that maybe was beyond, beyond what we thought we were capable of. Something generous, something kind, something loving. 
And it's, it's complicated. It's a tangled ball of, of yarn, and we are complicated. We are complicated beings, and we can't just relegate it to this one, you know, turning of the pen moment where everything is going to look great, and then we pop back into place anytime we start to sin. It's just not that simple. It's not like that. Um, and so... Sorry. I realized I wasn't advancing the slides. My bad. But anyways, that's the Psalm 50. That's James calling me out on my sin. And then uh, there's this, there's the Sisyphus point pushing the boulder up on the mountain and me trying to be artistic, failing, but still trying to be artistic. And so we move on to, you know, the next part of this. Well, if not us, then who? And the answer is, oh, God. Right, and you, it's it's presented later in Psalm 50, right? Look at the verbiage of Psalm 50. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's who's the agent of action here? The agent of action is God, right? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's not I will wash myself of my iniquity and sin. It is you, God, wash me of my iniquity and wash me of my sin, right? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. It's, again, a call to God to do these things for you, to hold the work of the Holy Spirit within your hearts, within your lives, to do this work. It's not going to come from you, right? I, in a conversation I had with a friend of mine, and I'll get a, touch a little bit more on this later, uh, you know, who are we fooling to think that we're going to solve these issues, that we're not going to all of a sudden not going to sin? We're all of a sudden not going to we're all of a sudden going to be righteous and completely whole. I mean, who are we trying to fool here, right? And, and the realization, when you examine things, when you kind of look at, at yourself, is that it's, it's, you know, odds are after this many years, it's probably not going to come from me. It's probably not going to happen because of something I did or I wanted to do, right? It, it's the agent of action is God. Right? So we continue, make me to hear the joy of gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and you, God, blot out all my iniquities. You, God, and this is the born again part of it, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So God is the creator. God is the one who is able to make us born again. God is the one who creates anew in us. He's the one who cleans, cleanses, who purges who relieves the strain and the agony of having to push this boulder up the mountain every day. <coughs> this is going to date me a little bit, or a lot bit, but I like to call this the repentance reset button. Who, who, who remembers the original Nintendo? I mean, some of us probably remember the ColecoVision and the Intellivision and all that stuff, but the Ataris, but the original Nintendo, what happens, you know? As a kid, I'm playing this game, and like, you know, I've got three lives to make it to the end, and like, in the first like 30 seconds, one of like the little goblins kills me. So what do I do? I press the reset button, right? Start this thing over again, because that was not good. So this is the repentance reset button, and I like to th think of it this way. We have this reset button that God gives us, and it's known the way I think of it is it's, it's, that's repentance, right? This is us being able to press reset on whatever we did yesterday or whatever we did a week ago that convicts us and puts us into despair or causes us to kind of journey down that road. 
we, God gives us the, the tool set to press reset. And this is from uh, the Russian church, and this is, goes back to the discussion I was having with my friend again about, about sin. Um, Bishop Ignati Branachiev, definitely mispronounced that, uh, let's, le left us the following precious instruction. In order to live spiritually and draw breath from grace, we must continually exhale the ashes of sin. We sin almost constantly, if not in our deeds, then in our thoughts and feelings. Therefore, it is essential to continually cleanse our souls in the language of asceticism, teaching on religious struggle. It is known as internal activity or attentiveness. To continually repent is to pay unceasing attention to one's spiritual life, to assess and remove from it all that is questionable and foolish. The spiritual battle requires ability, God's assistance, and constant prayer. As the Holy Fathers of the Church write, it is pointless to weep over the sins of the past if we do not struggle with them in the present. Continual repentance or attentiveness is that poverty of spirit of which Christ speaks in the first beatitude in his Sermon on the Mount. To call such to repentance is found throughout the word of God and text of the Orthodox worship. In a sense, all of the teaching of the Church is a single call to repentance in the most profound sense of that term. It is, call, it is a call to rebirth, to a complete reassessment of all values, to a new understanding and vision of life in the light of Christ. And there's just two big things I want to highlight there. Number one is we're fooling ourselves if we think we're going to live a sinless life. It just doesn't, it's not going to happen, you know, for most of us. Maybe there's a saint among us where that may happen, and even the saints struggled with sins. Um, but it's, it's this idea that sin is constantly before us, right? And that is despairing. That is horrible thought in terms of our spiritual life if we don't have a solution to it, if we don't have something to cleanse us, if we don't have something to purify us, if we don't have a God that loves us enough to allow us to press a reset button on a daily basis. And that's the thing, is that we have the ability and the opportunity to do this on a daily basis. Repentance is not an action. Repentance is a way of life. It's a way of thought. It's a way of saying, looking at yourself and saying, you know what, I'm not okay with what I did yesterday. I'm not okay with the way I spoke to my wife. I'm not okay with the way I m treated my child or my colleague at work. I'm not okay with that. It's this recognition that we are called to something better. We are called to a better life. We are called to righteousness. We are called to present ourselves pure in front of God but we have to realize we're not going to do that on our own. That comes only from God, and that's, that comes from prayerful meditation and repentance. It, it, it requires us to look at ourselves in the mirror. It requires us, more importantly, to look to God as the solution for that. And, you know, that's, that's really what I wanted to, to talk about today is the importance of repentance. The importance of repentance. The importance of, that's Psalm 50 and 51 and through 150. But anyway, <laughs> but um, uh, so, so I, ho I hope this helps because my, my point is it's really ironic actually the, one of the last points I want to 
bring up is going back to this idea of Sisyphus, right? And uh, it really was a helpful thing for me to, to envision. And there's this existentialist writer, actually he doesn't want to be called an existentialist, he's an absurdist, which I just read about a little bit. Uh, Alberto Camus, Camus, he's French, I don't know, I stink at French, I can't say any of the words. But uh, he, his basic, he talked about the story of Sisyphus. And he said, he's, he, he was trying to, absurdism basically is, there's no, there's no point to life, this is absurd, right? Um, and he said, he looked at the story of Sisyphus and said that, um, actually I wanna bring his quote out um, exactly because I don't wanna misquote what he said. But he said, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And that's, that's interesting. The struggle, this repentance, this looking towards God, this praying Psalm 50, this idea of calling to God, this work that we do in partnership with God through his grace should make us to some degree happy. But I have exception with that. I think what makes us happy is the victory at the end. What makes us happy is the knowledge that there is a point through the grace of God where that boulder does reach the top of the mountain and it doesn't roll back. And that's, that, that was through his death and his resurrection and victory over sin. That's because he loves us and otherwise we would be just a guy rolling a boulder up a hill and watching it trample us day after day after day. We know at the end of our journey, the journey of repentance, the journey of prayer, that God allows us to have victory. And that's, that's what we can be happy about. That's what we can rely on. And that's what can give us peace at heart when we look at ourselves and maybe aren't so satisfied. We know that because of God, there is salvation and there is satisfaction and joy and peace at the end. And uh, I guess that's, that's the talk for today. If anybody has any comments or thoughts about this, I'd love to hear them. And again, this is stuff that I just chew on. It's nothing profound or particularly uh, earth-shattering. You know, it's, it's funny, you get asked to give these talks, and, you know, every time I get up and give a talk, it's like a variation on the same theme. I'm going to talk about love or repentance or forgiveness or charity, or there's just a couple things in our faith that are really important. A lot of it's just not important. The, you know, the, the stuff that's important is, is the love, is the relationship with God, is the repentance, is the forgiveness, is, is the change that he causes in our life. And um, so if it's redundant, I apologize, but uh, I'll probably talk about Psalm 50 in a couple weeks anyways, so. Yeah, so uh, practical application. So one of the, if you, do you have something in mind, Mike? Or so, so one of the practical applications for me personally was that I don't leave the house or walk into work without saying Psalm, the prayer of Thanksgiving and Psalm 50. I just made that, that commitment at earlier this year at some point and I said, I don't, I don't start my day without the prayer of Thanksgiving and Psalm 150. And it's, it's, just, it's just to remind myself and to pray that we need to be thankful for, what we, for, for our God, for our lives, for what we have, for our faith, for the fact that God loves us. And we need to be thinking about ourselves on a daily basis. A good time is in the morning because 
you know, either in the morning and then at night before you go to bed just to kind of reassess these things. Um, and these are, these are good reminders, right? And some, some, there's a Coptic priest who talks about this self-reflection is important, this introspection. And don't, it's not to get down on yourself. Please, don't use it at that because that's destructive and that's not going to be helpful. We have to understand that we are not perfect. We are not, we are not meant at this point in our lives to be perfect and we're not expected to be perfect. If you've sinned, put that sin in front of God. If you've done wrong, acknowledge it. Be unsatisfied with it, but don't despair over it. There is forgiveness, and there is through repentance and confession. So on, on the daily basis, it's the introspection on, and the prayer. And repentance is a daily thing. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a one-time thing, or it's, it's not something that you do in, in a moment. Repentance is a continual process and activity. It's a cleansing. So on the daily basis, maybe that introspection. On the weekly basis, uh, and it, it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it's, it's coming to church and, ha and standing before the altar and having communion, being filled by the mystery of, of communion, the body and blood of Christ. It does work inside of you through the Holy Spirit. It's not something we just come symbolically to do. It's not something that we do traditionally. It's something that is, is mysteriously woven into the fiber of our day-to-day. -day. And it, it, it helps, it feeds, it nourishes, and we have to think of it that way. So on a weekly basis, standing in front of the altar and communing. And then on a, on a monthly or semi-frequent basis is, is confession, bringing, your, bringing your, your missteps before the priest, um, your father of confession, and getting the absolution from, from him for those things, working things out with your spiritual father. So maybe those are some practical. Yeah, um, so, I mean, when we think of despair and depression, and there are others far more qualified to talk on this than I, I am in this church. We have counselors and psychologists and so forth, but, but depression oftentimes leads to just an inability to do anything, right? If you find yourself getting teetering on the, on the point of despair, where you can't function, you are crippled by your sin, you are like just a shell of yourself you cannot you know you can't function as a normal person that may be <laughs> the point where you realize it's gone too far it should never get to that point because again we have a repentance reset button we have a method and a way of forgiveness and love from god that allows us to move past that right we are not uh you know we are not a ledger of the things we've done, right? And that's, that's something we have to, to understand, the good and the bad. We're not a ledger of the things we've done, the charities I've helped or the people I've helped along the way. Those are wonderful, and if those are done with a loving spirit and a kind heart, yes, God 
rewards that in heaven, but we're not a ledger of those good things and we're not a ledger of the bad things. And we need to, to, rem to remind ourselves that we're clean every morning that we wake up and offer daily repentance. But we also have to, we also need to balance that, like Mike is saying, and it's not a license to do whatever you want to do because, you know, what I love about the prayers in Egbeya, the seen and the unseen, the intentional and the unintentional, nothing is unseen by God. God sees all, right? So you can fool yourself, you can fool your friends. There's nothing that is unseen, right? So we have to be careful with that. We have to know that God knows the workings of our heart. If I do a sin and I say, well, God will forgive me if I'm quote-unquote repentant, that, that's, a, that's a straw, that's like a straw pull. It means nothing. It only means something if you actually mean it in your heart of hearts. If you approach God with a repentant heart and you actually mean it, if it's just verbiage and I'm going to go confess and then Buddha's going to, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know how it works. I'll, I'll be the first to say that, but I'm pretty sure if Abuna prays the absolution over you and you didn't mean a word of what you said, it probably doesn't mean very much. Maybe it means something in terms of, like, you know, earth, but it doesn't mean much if it's not meant, right? God knows the workings of your heart, right? And so, so that's the balance, right? It's not a license to do whatever you want because that heart has to be there to, to move towards him. I mean, the one thing I liked about the, that, that pastor said was that arrow pointing the other way, that is the direction of our lives, should be the direction of our lives. Sometimes it's messy and goes backwards a little bit, but the, the overall trajectory should be an approach towards God. It should be walking towards God, that I'm better, you know, in air quotes, better spiritually today than I was five, ten, ten years, ten years ago, you know, because of the grace of God. We should be always moving towards him, towards our relationship with him. And that's, that's kind of how you, how I try to strike the balance somewhat unsuccessfully sometimes, but, um, yeah, because, I mean, I've been there. I've been there where, where the things I've done really, I get very frustrated and angry with myself and upset with myself. And, and it, There's no hope or, yeah, yeah. You just continue doing the same thing. Well, I'm never going to get over this anyways, so what's the use? I'm just going to keep, you know, doing whatever, whatever that is. So any other thoughts or comments or practical ways that anybody here has dealt with these things? I just have to thank my friend John Babawi for introducing me to Sisyphus many years ago. All right, thank you. <laughs>